0: Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and and we ask now for uh, the grace necessary uh, to hear your word, to understand it, to love it, to know you through it, and and to have our lives changed by it, Uh, especially with the subject matter of our text today. We ask for the grace we need uh, to receive it. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, We come to a chapter now where Jesus devotes almost the entirety of it to speaking about money, uh, possessions, and how we handle the goods of this temporal and passing world. Uh, What do we do with what we have? And it's very concrete in a way that we can't make any mistake about what we believe when we look at how we spend. For what we do with our money tells us exactly what we believe in, and what we do with our wealth lets us know the status of our own discipleship. And I think it is that sometimes after a chapter like Luke 15 with the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, we can sometimes be so wrapped up in the theology of God's love for the lost, his seeking and his appeal to the prodigal, and even that same kind of seeking and appeal to the self-righteous. We can be so uh, intoxicated with this display of his grace and mercy, which is good, and it's, it's more than good. But this kind of theology is never meant to be only an exercise of the mind or feeling some feelings alone. For Christianity is not, uh, at the end of the day, knowing statements and concepts to recite. No, saving faith is trust in a person, and that trust is demonstrated in our belief that what he says is actually true. Belief in God is always going to lead to some real concrete action. It's not enough to understand we actually have to apply theology in real living. And there's perhaps no greater way to discern what it is that we actually do believe than when we look at how we spend and save and store and whatnot. Uh, Now, this is a a difficult parable in one sense because of the subject matter. But what makes this particular passage uh, difficult in another way Uh, for so many commentators and believers over the centuries, and rightfully so, is that Jesus teaches this lesson uh, using the most despicable kind of person as the primary example. We're we're learning from this example of a scoundrel that somehow even the most dishonest, selfish, weasel-like person, the true believer can still nonetheless learn something about genuine belief being put into action concrete living based on genuine faith. And before we get into this parable, I do think that that is okay, that Jesus can commend a certain aspect of a a person without endorsing the whole. Uh, We do this, perhaps unknowingly, almost all the time. For those of you basketball fans, NBA playoff season is here, and they've been watching any of it. Game one, Clippers against the Phoenix Suns this past week before everyone got hurt. But Russell Westbrook shoots three for 19, He misses 16 of his 19 shots, that means he misses about 85% of his shots. People like that aren't supposed to shoot 19 times a game. But he did grab 11 rebounds, which was more rebounds than the opposing center, and at the end of the game, with the game on the line, Russell Westbrook is defending Devin Booker and he has a game-saving block in the final moments, and not only did he block the shot, but he grabs the ball and throws it off of Devin Booker, who's complaining about not getting the call. And he seals a win for his team. And I'm thinking while I'm watching that, that that is how you play the game. Also, effort, that translates into defense and rebounds. Because it's possible to highlight one aspect without endorsing the rest of it. We do it all the time. And I can tell the boys, be like Russell Westbrook. But don't be like Russell Westbrook. <laughs> yeah, the approval of a part does not mean endorsement of the whole. And we come to this parable, which is an approval of a part. And it's not an endorsement of the whole. And with that out of the way, we do come to a place where Jesus is actually using a scoundrel to teach his disciples about the use of our possessions and genuine belief being put into action. Please look with me in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, and that's who this is targeted for, people who follow Jesus. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. We are here being introduced to a man with almost no redeeming qualities at all, except the one which we will get to. But the picture that Jesus paints of this dishonest manager is not a very pretty one. This is not the kind of person uh, parents hope their children grow up to be or the kind of person that you want to marry or have your kids marry or anyone you love date and marry. This is not the person you want to have as an employee or a co-worker or perhaps even a friend. I mean, listen to him. I don't want to dig. I'm too proud to beg. He is both lazy and arrogant, which is a vicious combination. And this is by design, for there is, again, only one redeeming quality about him. But we look at this soon-to-be ex-manager, and the job he's hired to do is really to manage accounts for his employer, to maintain and grow that wealth for him, and to ensure that this wealth is not lost, depreciated, and whatnot. But this is not his money. It's the rich man's money. And this rich man is so wealthy and perhaps so busy that he hires people to manage that estate, that property, and whatnot. And and sometimes it is that people who manage other people's wealth can fall into this temptation of using that wealth for themselves rather than for the owner of it, whether it's lavish meals or flying private jets, blah, 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 all while producing very little. That's just called bad stewardship. And financial advisors and executives are always getting busted for this in the news, Whether they live too fat on their client's dime or misappropriate funds uh, in this or that manner, embezzlement, and the like. But they're able to do that because they have a certain authority and discretion and freedom, which can also, therefore, become this temptation. And Christians, we can all often be guilty of the same for treating the wealth that God has given to us, not as a stewardship, but as an ownership that we spend so self-centeredly and not God-centeredly. But the manager gets busted. He gets ratted out for wasting possessions. And that same word used for waste is the same word the prodigal was used of the prodigal when he squandered his father's estate. So this manager is squandering his boss's cash. And there's no rebuttal, nor is there any argument against it. I think this is the case because the manager is guilty. He's shady, and he knows it. I've been had. This jig is up. And so he begins to act and to act quickly. And we learn quite a bit from his soliloquy, this internal monologue that gives us insight into his heart and his mindset. And first, let's look at his presuppositions. This is his belief set. This is his assumed truths. Number one, my time in this position is very limited. My time is limited. I have access to these accounts for just a short period, really just to prepare a report for my replacement because I am effectively fired. And so belief assumption number one, my time is limited. Number two, the money I currently manage is not mine to keep. It's not mine to keep. True, I do have this control over it, but I'm not gonna have control over it very soon. And so my time is limited. This money is not mine to keep. And three, I have a life that I need to worry about, post-management, post-job, that I need to maximize my opportunity now to maximize my happiness later. So my time is limited. This money is not mine to keep. I have to max this opportunity now to maximize my happiness later. These are the set of assumptions that fuel his actions. And what are his actions based on this set of assumptions? He uses his position his passing authority, to sit down with his master's debtors, and he makes some massive changes to their debts. 100 measures of oil, make that 50. That's a 50% discount. Some commentators estimate that this is the equivalent of 875 gallons, which takes 150 trees and is approximately worth three years of wages. This isn't chump change. This is a life-altering adjustment. A hundred measures of wheat make that 80. I don't know why this is 20% and not 50%, but this might be the equivalent of over a year of wages. And these are likely just two examples of what this manager did wholesale with the remaining time in his position. But does he really care about these steep discounts? No, because this money is not his to keep. I'm spending, or better, wasting someone else's. It's not mine. I won't have control over any of it very soon. But why am I doing this? To maximize my happiness in the next phase of my life, by maximizing my opportunity now. What this scoundrel, who is too proud to beg and too lazy to dig, is doing is he's trying to put people into his debt, into his favor, by using someone else's possessions and wealth. He's using his master's money to indulge himself, and he's trying to figure out a way That in the future, he can freeload off of others who will owe him a massive favor. But the moment he believes what he believes, he actually acts on it with haste. What he believes is consistent with how he lives, and it is very concrete, and it is measurable. Verse 8, we see his boss's reaction, and also Jesus's commentary on it. We read this, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. There's nothing commendable about this dishonest manager except one thing, his shrewdness. Uh, he's prudent. He's, he's sharp. He's intelligent. He's clever. He's alert to what is going on. He's wise in judgment. He's Akamai. And, and if anything, we would expect that this master would be furious at the loss of so much of his wealth at the hands of this dishonest manager. But he is actually impressed. I, I didn't know you had it in you to act so quickly, uh, decisively, shrewdly to prepare. For your life after this phase so well, I tip my hat off to you. And that's the catch and the hook of the entire parable. Even when a scoundrel acts shrewdly, it's commendable. Even when this weasel acts according to his assumptions, his beliefs set, it is noteworthy. And then we get to Jesus' commentary, and he says this, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What is Jesus saying? He's saying unbelievers act more consistently with their beliefs than we do with ours. I mean, this is designed to be a convicting comparison. This guy versus the followers of Jesus. We have someone who is shady and unadmirable, too proud to beg, too lazy to dig. Who knows? My time is limited. This money I manage is not my own. And I have to maximize this opportunity now to set up my future. That as shady and as weak that he is, he still lives like these things are actually true. And somehow it is, brothers and sisters, that we have tremendous truth. And yet somehow we live like these things are fake. Number one, our time is limited. We are but a wisp and a passing vapor, James 4.14. A flower quickly fading, Isaiah 40. I mean, we bloom one day. We're forgotten the next. Our time is very limited. Number two, our money, our possessions, our talents, our resources, they are not our own. They are the Lord's. Everything that is ours, we have received, 1 Corinthians 4.7. Even our lives are not our own, 1 Corinthians 3.23. Chapter 6.19, we were bought with a price. None of this is ours to keep. Number three, we have to maximize our opportunity now to maximize our happiness later. What did Bob read to us this morning? But Matthew 6:19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It's just not reliable down here. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, where was this scoundrel in our parable? Where was his heart? Not with his current position. Not with the money that was not his to keep. No, his heart was post-management. And therefore, all his actions were lived with that afterlife in mind. And honestly, it was a smart thing to do. Shrewd, and even his ex-boss commended him for it. That is the one redeemable thing about him. And yet it is, again, that we have tremendous truth. And somehow the sons of light believers, we live as if this truth is not true at all. Because we can so easily be consumed with the fading, the passing, and our eyes and our minds and our hearts are not invested in what is inevitably going to come. They are somehow more invested with what is guaranteed to pass away. And let me uh, read to you from the wisdom of Calvin and Hobbes, and I found this quoted in. Um, this is Philip Rikens' commentary on the Book of Luke. Because what Jesus is teaching here is very contrary to every impulse in our culture today, which is consumeristic. Uh, he says when people are when people know they are running out of time, they they actually usually spend more on themselves, not less on themselves. This is strange. As Calvin and his friends Hobbes uh, contemplate a snowman they have made, Hobbes comments, this snowman doesn't look very happy. He's not, Calvin says. He knows it's just a matter of time before he melts. The sun ignores his existence. He feels his existence is meaningless. Hobbes responds by asking if if existence is really as meaningless as the snowman thinks it is. Nope, Calvin replies. He is about to buy a big screen TV. But this is the way many people operate. They're living for the moment, not for eternity. And when from time to time they sense this meaninglessness of their existence, they just go out and buy something to make themselves feel better. I I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus chooses to use a scoundrel to teach the disciples a lesson about real and concrete actions springing forth from real belief. I think that one of the reasons why Jesus uses a scoundrel and this hook is to really wake us all up. I mean, it'd be one thing if the parable contained this noble person, admirable, and everyone wants to be like him or her. It's another thing when he takes Mr. Too Weak to dig and too proud to beg, and he says, even this guy's better than us. And I wonder if, if this melting snowman were like him, more concerned with the size of our TV, more concerned with the zip code we live in, more concerned with the points our kids put on the board, more concerned with gaining that six-pack the new ride, the college we need to get into, the career we must decide between, blah, 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 and blah, 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 as if somehow these things are close to being ultimate things. I wonder if you're the melting snowman totally unaware of why it is that we even exist. I mean, this is where Jesus' parable is meant to put his followers, and this is not evangelism right here, this is where he puts his followers into a place of reflection to see what it is we really believe by looking at how we actually live. Uh, the famous poem, I think it's a poem, C.T. Stud. And it's a good thing to uh, read the whole thing when you get a chance. But the famous refrain, only one life twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. What is it that will last in this parable? What does Jesus say here? He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves By means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, because it's going to fail, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What does that mean? There is a way to use our unrighteous wealth, and and that's not a comment on money being evil. Money is morally neutral. Now, the love of it can be the root of all kinds of evil, but that doesn't make money evil. It just means we are evil, and we can be. Money is just currency. It's not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to be poor. I think it becomes unrighteous wealth when we think our happiness is to be found in it. I think it is unrighteous in that it will one day fail. And it can deceive us into thinking that it will never fail. It's unrighteous in the sense where loving it can and will compete with our love for God. But there is a way to use our unrighteous wealth as a means and as a power and as a way to actually bring people into heaven. In the parable, the unrighteous steward uses the money he is managing and spends it freely like it's not his to keep so that he might have friends waiting for him post-job. In our short, earthly lives, we can use the money we are managing because it's not ours, it is the Lord's. And we can spend freely like it's not ours to keep so that we might have friends waiting for us in heaven. Whether you give more freely to the church or more generously to missionaries that preach the gospel, particularly in the most unreached places. And do your research. Just because somebody calls themselves missionaries doesn't mean they're legit. Be wise. You can look at the map outside these double doors right here to the left at all the places that are in green. That means there's not many churches or Christians around them and spend more in those red spots than anywhere else. I mean, that's what we're trying to figure out as a church family that Pastor Dave alluded to with our church finances, our family budget, so to speak. That uh, Maybe there is a better way to spend this than how we are spending it. Not in the green, but in the red. For a big percentage of our budget to use for ministry outside of these walls. Whether you give to campus ministries, because secular colleges, I mean, even UH, the statistics are alarming for what the next generation is actually believing. Even when they talk to people who are Christians, I think something like 4% believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's the next gen. We can actually begin to fuel ministries that help people bring, help bring people into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That when all is said and done and our lives are over, we will be utterly surprised, I think, That the investment we made in the kingdom is going to be used to bring people into it. That when we enter into eternity, there are going to be those there that are there because God chose to use the resources he entrusted to us to bring them to himself. And they are the ones who are going to welcome us in. I mean, can you imagine that? People you have never, ever met before welcoming you in to heavenly rest that I'm here in part because of God, how God used you to fuel what it is that brought me here. I mean, this is why melty snow men and snow women sacrifices uh, 20 inches of TV real estate or or drive our cars a little bit longer and wear our clothes, even if they are a little bit more worn and out of style so that we can spend more on something else. And perhaps for others here, instead of purchasing that fourth investment home and whatnot, we choose not to realize certain gains here so that gains may be had somewhere else. You know sometimes I think, man, I, I should have bought Apple stock back in the late '90s." <laughs> Bitcoin when it first came out, you know, way back when. Imagine what it would be like today. You know, imagine what it would be like in eternity. We're going to think, I wish back then I invested a little bit more in what would last. I mean, and this is why Jesus' followers give to ministries to serve people we don't even know. And we might not even meet in this life. Because a time is coming where our master is going to call us into account of how he spent what he gave us here to manage. And this is not a rebuke solely in this parable, although Jesus does do that. But the visual, again, is of this waiting community in eternity... And this comes right off the heels of Luke chapter 15 where there's a celebration in heaven of the lost being found over and over again and again. If we believe it, then this is how we're going to spend for it, because again, genuine belief can always be measured in concrete action. Our time is short. Our money is not our own. But we can maximize the opportunity now to maximize this joy later. And so we often do not act like the scoundrel because we often do not actually believe these things to be true. And there are unbelievers who know not the truth, who live more consistently with their worldview than sons of light who somehow live like this truth is not very true at all. And this is Jesus' appeal to his disciples. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be better than the scoundrel, Right? We must be more consistent than he is, right? Verse 10, we continue. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, Jesus is making it very clear here that this is an either or, not a both and. We will serve God, or we will serve money. We can only love and be devoted to one, and we will actually despise the other. He's not talking about 60% God, 40% a year. He's not even talking about percentages. Jesus wants the whole of our heart. Now, I want to be crystal clear here. This is a passage written to disciples. Uh, This is not about how you get to heaven. Jesus is not saying you can buy your way there. He's not saying if you give this much, then you get to go, and if you invest this much in heaven, then this is your ticket there to a bunch of friends waiting for you. Now, the only way that any of us sinful people can ever enter into heaven Is because of faith in Jesus Christ. We can't get there on our own. We're too weak to get there on our own. Someone has to pay a price for us. And Jesus does that by dying on the cross in our place for our sins and as sin itself to absorb the wrath of God, which is due to us. That's what we deserve. But he can welcome us to life after death because he was raised from death to life. He defeats that power of sin and death so that the one who believes in him, the one who has faith in him might have the power to fight sin and be fearless of death for a time is coming where all that we see will be no more and all what we do not see will be an eternal reality. We can't buy our way into heaven. Someone has to literally carry us there. And Jesus does that because he loves us. But if we believe this gospel of love that God has for the sinful and we actually take him at his word, Then we know our time is limited, and none of this we're going to keep. And there's a harvest out there that needs to be gathered in now of which we can spend the money we are stewards and managers over so that we might have more joy in the ages to come. Now, there is a tendency for passages like these and ones on prayer and whatnot. They just make us feel guilty. And we feel guilty for a day or two, and then we go right back into old patterns. But this is not about making people feel guilty at the end of the day. This is simply about truly assessing what it is that we actually believe. Jesus puts his followers into a place of contemplation in a very concrete way, in a way that we can't make any mistake about what we have faith in when we look at what we spend on. For what we do with what we have tells us exactly what we believe in. And what we do with our money lets us know the status of our own discipleship, always. Now, the principle Jesus lays before us is faithful in little, faithful in much. It means that we shouldn't say, one day I'm going to be faithful when I get rich. That's when it will be easier to think this way. That's simply not true. If it's hard to give 10 cents on a dollar, you think it's easier to give a G off 10 Gs? It's not. It's not. Hey, younger people, my kids, I tell you, birthday money, start the pattern now. It's easier to continue a pattern already established than to think that one day when you get older and when you get richer, that that's when you will think of the Lord. But, but more than that principle, Jesus is actually here lumping all of our earthly accumulation of net worth, and he calls all of that little, all of it. I mean, you could be Elon Musk, and in Jesus' eyes, it is little. Are you going to be faithful with this little But that little is in comparison to what is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And if we can't be faithful with the little worldly wealth, why would God entrust us us with heavenly wealth? Jesus is trying to give us some perspective here. Everything you see, it's all peanuts. All of it. And it's not even ours. But a time is coming where God wants to give his people real and true riches which will be ours to keep. And I don't know exactly what that looks like, except that it will make everything shiny here and everything that glimmers now look pale in comparison. But this is not ultimately just about varying amounts of treasures in heaven. For Jesus states very clearly, no servant can serve two masters. No servant can. Either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Our use of our money at the end of the day shows us who it is we worship, point blank. Now, when I read this as a new believer, the immediate question that came into my mind was, why not both? I think I could do it. And perhaps there are many here who think they can't too, as if Jesus sometimes doesn't tell us the whole truth. Uh, but we really can't. We just can't believe two contradictory things at the same time. If we were to use a scoundrel as an example, he's got to make a choice. With the limited amount of time he has, he could use that time to eat a few nice meals, go get a massage, get his fingernails cut, his hair did, and then it's over. He's sad when it comes, but you know what? I enjoyed it while it lasted. Or he can do what he did and make sure his afterlife is maximized by foregoing that enjoyment in the now to ensure his enjoyment later. You can't do both at the same time. And for us, we have to be very and really honest with ourselves if we're living more for this world than we are for the next one. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying never buy a new car, don't eat a steak, and never own your own house. I don't think this is about drawing those kinds of lines. But one life is obviously going to be primary, and the other life is going to be obviously secondary. And where our life really is, is where we're going to invest more of our all. And that tells us exactly what we think is more important, and it tells us who or what we have faith in. Our attitude towards wealth shows us who it is we actually worship. One commentator says it even more strongly. He says stewardship is worship. We declare who our God is every time we make a money decision. Either our money is Lord or Christ is Lord. We do it every time we make a big decision. Now, I know that many of you here are worshipers of God and that money. It shows in your faithfulness. And perhaps for many of us here, this is a conversation we actually have to have on the way home or over lunch uh, with our families or or maybe this week with our small groups because if we don't intentionally have that conversation, we're never going to have it. And if we don't ever have it, all we're going to do is feel feelings of guilt for a day or two and go right back to old patterns. But if we really want to be intentional, we're going to dialogue and get accountability and think through collectively as a church family for how we need to be invested in what is to come. If you were to look at your spending, which never does lie, what does your spending and investing tell you about what you really think is important and what you really think is essential? I mean, this is why we can't serve both because either eternity is coming and we can't wait to see what our investment in it is gonna return with friends waiting for us or we're gonna be utterly sad when it comes because everything we invested in is gone. You know, we... we. Uh, can have this tendency, each of us, uh, myself included, that with each new influx of money, whether it's a raise or, or investments coming in or a big monetary gift, we immediately begin to upgrade our standard of living. And sometimes we upgrade it beyond our money so then we need more money to keep it. And it becomes this vicious cycle of want and want and more want and discontentment and whatnot. I and mean, perhaps it is that we just have to set a standard and stick to it. And if God somehow gives us way more than that, then we can just have more money to play with, so to speak. Uh, This is very difficult, brothers and sisters, because we can't see what is coming with our eyes. And and we so often think that what we see is what we get, and what we see is all that there is, which is exactly how someone who does not know the Lord lives their life. That's why you can't serve God and mammon. You know, for our church congregation in uh, one of the most expensive states, and we're on the most expensive island of that state Uh, We're all pretty affluent, and I'll close with this passage from 1 Timothy 6, 17, and 19. It says, as for the rich in this prison age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Brothers and sisters, may we take hold of that which is truly life. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your text. It's cutting. It's sharp. It's um, sharper than any two-edged sword. And um, only by your spirit will, will this produce fruit in our lives. Father, this uh, cuts so close to home. It it gets so close to our hearts, and and we thank you that that you're unashamed to do that. And I pray, Lord, by your mercy, that you would uh, reveal to us more and more what we really believe, for there is nothing more important about us than what we believe. And and we are prone to short-sightedness. We are prone to be impressed with things that you're not all that impressed with, Lord, we need your grace to see things for what they really are, and we want to maximize your glory and our lasting happiness. Give us that kind of heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.